Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Turn to First Corinthians chapter four. Uh, that is just a landing spot for our introduction here. We are. I would encourage you if you have arthritis or anything in your hands, loosen them up. We're going to be moving all over the Bible this morning. Um, this is definitely, sometimes you put selected scriptures at the bottom uh, of the bulletin in terms of text. This morning, we are literally selecting a lot of scriptures um, because we want to talk about this theme of faithful stewardship. Uh, after our fellowship corner, in just a little while, we're going to have a members meeting where we as elders are going to give an accounting for um, how we've stewarded the church's resources over the last, over the last year. And also, like I said earlier, how we plan to steward them and deploy them in the year ahead. So, <clears throat> excuse me, this Sunday presents, I think, a, one of the opportunities that we have throughout the year to remind ourselves of our responsibility as Christ's disciples to manage all that God has entrusted to us for his honor and for his glory. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you look uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul, right there at the beginning of the letter, toward the front of the letter, makes clear that he viewed himself as both a servant of Christ, but he also appends another, another um, um, label to himself. He calls himself a steward, a steward. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So put simply, Paul viewed himself as a manager, as a manager of the deposit of divine truth that God had entrusted to him as an apostle. And then he proceeds to give this general principle that governs how he, as well as all of us, must approach this this responsibility of stewardship. He says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So, As we look at this text, the light of natural and divine revelation teach us that a manager has a requirement, and that requirement is that they must be trustworthy. You could also translate it, and maybe some translations have it as faithful. They must be faithful. And in fact, uh, faithfulness or trustworthiness is fronted in the original language. It, It almost seems to be putting the accent mark on that reality. Uh, You could almost translate it as, moreover, faithfulness must be found of a steward. Something like that, if we were to translate it in English. When all is said and done, a steward must be evaluated to be trustworthy, to be faithful. And there's a lot baked into Paul's description of himself as God's steward. Foundational spiritual realities that you and I might be tempted to drive right past at highway speed, but um, they're actually things that we should slow down for just a few minutes to let our eyes linger on them this morning. Um, Three things kind of stand out just by way of introduction. First, baked into this concept of stewardship, uh, first of all, and we've taught on this before, is God's possession of everything. God's possession of everything. Psalm 50 verse 10 says, for every, God says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, God says, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. So, you know, when we look around at all that we have, we think, well, that car is mine, and that home is mine, and that money in my bank account is mine, and my children are mine, or, you know, my time is mine, and this is all my stuff. 
But God actually says, no, actually, your car is mine, your, your home is mine, your money is mine, your children are mine, your time is mine. It all belongs to him, all of it. God's ownership of everything is so comprehensive that it extends to our very existence, our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, 6, excuse me, in verse 19 says, God says, do you not know, Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Everything in the universe belongs to God. All of it. Up to and including our physical body and our very existence. He's the creator. Scripture says he's the sustainer of those things. He's the owner of all of it. And that shapes how we view the things that we have. They don't belong to us. Biblically speaking, they're on loan to us. They don't belong to us to use however we want. They actually are given to us by God, and he expects us to use them the way he desires, the way he pleases. So, so first, baked into that concept of stewardship is God's ownership of everything. Secondly, alongside that, is God, baked into that concept of stewardship is God's pattern of management. God's pattern of management. Because everything we have, including our lives, belongs to God, the most we can say about all that we have is that we are managing it. We are managing it on God's behalf. Biblical stewardship presupposes God's ownership because a steward is one who manages someone else's resources. That's what a steward does. They, are, they don't have things of their own. They manage someone else's possessions. So the question becomes, how does God expect you and I to manage everything he owns and he's entrusted to our care? And it's different for every person in every household. And for that, I think it's important for us to look at Luke chapter 16. So I invite you to turn there for just a moment, because we are going to linger here for, for more than a minute. Luke chapter 16, Jesus, our Lord, gives a parable. And uh, this is a parable that oftentimes is uh, misunderstood, or it seems a little bit cryptic and, and unclear. I want to help remove some of the, maybe some of the confusion for you this morning. Jesus says, there was a rich man who had a manager. This is a story, just a made-up story to illustrate a point. There was a rich man who had a manager, and that manager or steward was reported to him as squandering the owner's possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. He says, I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from my, this position of management, people will come and welcome me into their homes. So we see at the very beginning here this story about a manager managing a, an owner's resources, and he, is, he has been unfaithful. He has been, uh, and now is being held, called to account to give a, a review for what he's done. And he realizes that's not going to go well for him. And so he, um, he makes a plan. He hatches a plan for the future. And that plan is given to us in verses 5 to 7. And this steward managed his, uh, summoned each one of the master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? 
And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And so what this manager decided to do was to um, basically go out and negotiate pennies on the dollar of the debt that these individuals owed his master. You know, instead of, uh, instead of paying 100%, he says you pay 50%. Instead of paying 100% of what you owe, you can pay 80%. I wish Wells Fargo would call me up and say, your mortgage, write that down 50%. You don't owe us any more than half of the principal that's left. But he does this, and, uh, and we see the response of the master in verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. In other words, this manager, the master was kind of like, well done, you know, you play, well played, sir, well played. Because now you have people who are going to be your friends because you have done them a humongous favor. And so the, we see kind of the, the point of it all at the end here. It says, and Jesus says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. The point of the parable, uh, you know, you say, well, wait a second, he's unfaithful and he's being praised. I don't get it. Listen, this is the point of the parable. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says, if unbelievers plan and use what is at their disposal, shrewdly, wisely, to prepare for the future, how much more should you and I as believers, as sons of light? And then Jesus brings it all home in verse 10. He says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in that which is in the use of another's, who will give you that which is your own? God's pattern of stewardship is that you and I were to manage all that God has entrusted to us in such a way as to lay up treasure in heaven. This is the pattern. This is the pattern that he has given to us in his word, to invest in those things which are eternal, those things that exalt him, and not to squander them on ourselves, on things that will ultimately perish. Randy Alcorn has a helpful little booklet called The Treasure Principle, and in that booklet he says we are to live for the line of eternity rather than the dot that is this present world. I love that analogy. It's such a convicting thing to think about, how we are to live for the line and not for the dot. Alongside this concept of God's ownership of everything and his pattern of management, baked into this concept of stewardship is God's priority on our hearts. God's priority on our hearts. Why are we as God's stewards to manage all that we've been given in such a way as to lay up treasure eternally in heaven? Well, the answer is, is given to us by Jesus in, earlier on in his ministry. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It matters where our heart is because where our heart is, there we will lay up treasure. The way we steward our resources is, in many ways, a, a barometer to gauge our love for and our commitment to the Lord. It's a, it's a barometer of our spiritual maturity. If you're consumed with temporal things, it betrays a lack of love for God. If you are consumed with eternal things, 
It reveals a commitment to God, and it extols his value, his worth, and his glory. And there, your heart will be also. If that is the focus of your heart, you will lay up treasure in heaven hand over fist, because it will be the thing that is most valuable to you. And so we must cultivate a heart that's satisfied and delights in God. And as we do that, one one of the many fruits of that commitment will be faithful stewardship. This, I guess, uh, leads us to ask and answer the question, what attitudes of the heart should I be pursuing in order to be found a faithful manager, a faithful steward? And I want to zero in on two this morning, and that's really the bulk of what we want to talk about. I believe there are two primary heart attitudes that yield the fruit of trustworthy stewardship in the believer's life. Uh, When these attitudes are present in your heart, if these are the primary drivers of 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 your soul, the results will be God-honoring, faithful management of your time, time uh, faithful time uh, management of your talents and gifts, as well as your money, your treasures, your possessions. It applies to all three of those. What are these attitudes that are so foundational to faithful stewardship? There are two that I want to look at this morning. First, the first is generosity, and the second is contentment. So two, kind of two attitudes that we're going to look at. We're going to pick them apart. Uh, those are each one. We'll spend some time on each one with some points underneath. We want to look at generosity, and we want to think about what the Word of God says about contentment. The first attitude that uh, leads us to, sp- to biblical uh, and faithful stewardship is generosity. Generosity. Uh, if you were to gather up all the passages of scripture that speak about stewardship and you were to line them all up from beginning to end and ask yourself, what is one of the overarching themes of all of these different passages, these individual verses in these statements in scripture? One of those themes, not the only, but one of those themes would be God's priority on generosity. God's priority on generosity. Generosity, biblically defined, is the disposition of the heart in dependence on the spirit that readily or liberally gives to others that which is at your disposal. I'll say that again. We're going to break that apart in all of its individual components because every part is important. Generosity is the disposition of the heart in dependence on the spirit that readily or or liberally gives to others that which is at your disposal. First, I want to break that down so we understand it. It is a dis- generosity is a is a heart disposition. All right, we must be careful not to define generosity in terms of external actions alone, because uh, that isn't how the Bible defines our actions. We need to define them more holistically in terms of internal desires that give rise to those external actions. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, uh, for us, uh, the, the heart, the mind, the will, the affections, those things drive our external behavior, our decisions, our choices, our actions. And so we're commanded to watch over the heart because that's how we watch over our lives. So good works that a believer does those things that truly glorify and honor God are the good fruits that come forth from the root of a heart that has been transformed by 
the Word of God and, excuse me, the Spirit of God and instructed with the Word of God. So, so it, the very foundational thing is, it is that we understand that generosity is a disposition, an orientation of the heart. Connected to that, biblical generosity is dependent on the Spirit of God. It is, uh, for a believer, generosity is dependent upon the Spirit of God. When your heart is instructed in the truth and the truth richly dwells within you, which is what it means to walk in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit imparts what, what I've called in the past a conviction that compels. That's how the Spirit moves us to act. He imparts to us a conviction that compels us to act in obedience to that word. So generosity rises out of a love for God and for others, and it is wrought in us by the Spirit of God as he takes that word and applies it to our hearts and lives. The third kind of part of that definition is that it is a disposition of the heart that is dependent on the Holy Spirit, and it is, it is readily looking to do something. In other words, that adverb is important. It speaks of motivation, not necessarily of ability. That's, that's important. We want to understand that generosity is an attitude. It is a disposition. And, and therefore, it readily looks to meet the needs of others. Some can't meet the needs of others. They don't have what they need to meet those needs. But they would if they could. That is a generous person. That is a generous person. While many can meet those needs but won't. Or they do, but they don't do so to the degree to which they otherwise could. And that is not a generous spirit. Generous people, generous believers, are spring-loaded for action. I like to think of it as a, you know, like a mousetrap. If you just touch it, man, it'll snap into action. Whether they have opportunity or not, whether they have the resources or not, a generous person is not reluctant a generous person is not, does not need to have their arm twisted. They don't need to be manipulated. They give and they move because it is the disposition of their heart that has been wrought by the Spirit. And the last part of that definition is that they liberally give to others that which is at their disposal. They liberally give to others that which is at their disposal. When the opportunity presents itself and the resources are available, they act. They act. When, 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 when the need arises and, and they have a capacity to meet that need, they do so sacrificially. They do so cheerfully, even maybe going above and beyond what's needed because that's their heart. It doesn't mean, now, generosity, to, to give generously or liberally does not mean that you impoverish yourself so that others have to step in and meet your basic needs. That's not the picture. In fact, Paul specifically um, uh, reminds us that that's not what he's asking the Corinthians to do in 2 Corinthians 8, where he is reminding them of the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. He says, uh, for he says it is an acceptable it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have for this is not the he says this this gift that you're going to give is not for the ease of others and for your affliction it is not for you to impoverish yourself to 
meet the needs of these other believers, but rather it is by way of equality. He says, at the present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance may become a supply for your need in the future, whenever that may happen, that there may be equality. So we don't necessarily need to impoverish ourselves to meet needs, but what generous people do is they are willing to sacrifice what might otherwise remain at their disposal for the benefit of others. That's what it means to be generous. So as we think about that definition, what's some of the motivation that we see, motivations that we see for this in Scripture? I'm going to give you three. These are kind of all sub-points here underneath our heading of generosity. The first is this. Our Heavenly Father is our example. Our Heavenly Father is our example. When it comes to generosity, we have a model to trace our lives after in God himself. Uh, I'm just going to read some references and explain the summarize some of these texts. I'm just going to go from one end of Scripture to the other. You don't need to turn there. You don't necessarily need to look at all these passages. But just want you to get a a glimpse. I mean, this is just a, a glimpse of how God has given to us. Genesis 1, verses 29 and 30, we see that God gave to Adam and his descendants everything that is on earth. He says, it's all yours. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, and, uh, and take possession of it. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God gave Abraham, by his free grace, land, a, a future land. A, he promised him a seed, a, a descendants, and blessing personally and worldwide. In Joshua 22 and verse 4, God gave Israel rest in the land that he had promised to Abraham. Uh, centuries before. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, God gave Solomon, by his grace, wisdom and discernment, unlike any other human being on the planet. If we move to the New Testament, John 3, 16, God gave his son to us so that we might be rescued from our sin. Acts chapter 11, verse 17 we learn that the, even the Gentiles received the gift of the Holy Spirit. God gave the Holy Spirit. Acts 17, verse 25, Paul, as he's preaching there in the Areopagus, says that God has given to all people life and breath and all things. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, God has given us as believers the ministry of reconciliation. Ephesians 1, verse 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. James 1, verse 5, he says, God gives to all generously and without reproach as it relates to asking for wisdom. And then later on in chapter 1, he says that God is the giver of every good gift. And on and on it goes. Our Heavenly Father is our example. And as I said earlier and said on numerous occasions, you and I can never outgive God, ever. So our Heavenly Father is our example. Not only is the Father our example, but secondly, the Word is our instructor. The Word of God is our instructor. It teaches us to be generous. Proverbs 11, verse 24 and 25, one man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly and comes to poverty. Or Proverbs 22, verse 9, a generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Galatians 9, verses 10. Uh, Galatians 6, excuse me, verses 9 and 10. Jesus, uh, Paul says, do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for them. Acts 20, verse 35. Jesus, quoted by Paul, one of the only sayings of Jesus recorded outside of the Gospels, Paul says that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than receive. And we could spend months, literally, teaching through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and all the explanation there of Paul's uh, instructions to the Corinthian church for their meeting the needs of the saints who are being persecuted and suffering in Jerusalem. Time and again, God's word teaches us to be generous in our dealings with those around us. So the Father is our example, the Word is our instructor. Thirdly, the Spirit is our enabler. The Spirit of God is our enabler. Uh, Look with me for a moment at Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 and verses 6 to 8. Because uh, there Paul is explaining how God has gifted every believer according to his sovereign will. And then he goes on to describe, he says, Since we have these gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, verse 6, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Notice what he says here. He who gives with liberality. So among the spiritual gifts given is this capacity to give and to give generously. That is something that the Spirit of God works in the heart to make us capable of meeting those needs and to do so in a generous way. If, we, um, if you go back to 2 Corinthians 8, or actually you would be going forward, I guess, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, as Paul speaks of this gift that he was collecting, that other churches around the region were also putting together for the saints in Jerusalem. He speaks of this gift In verse 1, he says, I want to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. What has enabled the Macedonian churches to give, to rise up and meet this need? He says, the grace of God. Well, what ministers the grace of God? What what measures out the grace of God to us? Well, it's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who does that. And later on in chapter 9... He speaks of these saints who will receive the gift and how they are thankful and they will be praying for you and how they, he says, verse 14, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. So their ability to meet that need, to be generous, is a function of the grace of God working in their hearts and lives. The Spirit is the one who stands behind truly God-honoring generosity. Why is generosity critical to biblical stewardship? Generosity means that you hold all that God's given you with an open hand. When you're generous, you don't cling to the things of the world. You don't, you don't hold on to them because they have been put under your care by God. We recognize that our time is not our own. Our money is not our own. Our skills and gifts are not for our own use and in our own selfish ends. But when we're tight-fisted and selfish, 
we have difficulty laying up treasure in heaven. We have difficulty giving to others and meeting needs because, because we think it belongs to us. God expects and deserves the maximum return on investment as a, as a manager. We're to live as we said earlier, for the line, not for the dot. A generous spirit reflects that. It reflects the heart of God and consistently makes eternal investments day after day after day. So let me just give you some very practical application. How do we cultivate this attitude of generosity? Well, one thing that I would start with is regularly reflect on the generosity of God himself in his word regularly reflect on the generosity of God himself and his word. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, nor to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on who? On God. He says, fix your hope on God. That's the antidote to selfishness. That's the antidote to stinginess. Fix your, 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 your heart and your hope and your, your gaze on God. So we start by understanding how God has given and does give every breath and everything that we have to us. So we think about him rightly. Uh, perhaps another very practical application is to scrutinize your schedule, your ministry, your commitments, and your finances to see where there is slack for others. Scrutinize your schedules, your ministry commitments, your finances, all of it, budget. See where you might grow. Identify blind spots. We all have them. We all have things that we think we need that we don't really need. <laughs> we all have things we, we, we think are unmovable, but if we're honest, they're probably somewhat flexible and movable. And then finally, the point of application, be specific in your implementation. Make a clear and quantifiable plan and then carry it out. Carry that out. And then do it again and again and again. The satisfaction of obedience, I promise you, will jumpstart greater faithfulness. The, sad, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the satisfaction of obeying God in these things will jumpstart greater faithfulness. So the, the first attitude we've got, we have to have to be a faithful steward is one of generosity. There's a second hard attitude that we also need to have that produces in the fruit of biblical stewardship or faithful stewardship, and that is contentment. Contentment. Contentment is defined by a, a counseling reference guide that I have on my desk. I thought it was a good definition, so I'm using it. Um, as accepting in faith, with a thankful heart and a submissive spirit, that which God in his grace and his wisdom ordains for us. It is to, to be content is to accept in faith, with a thankful heart and a submissive spirit, that which God in his grace and wisdom ordains for us. You could almost think of contentment like a composite uh, attitude that's built on by, into, is by two things, thankfulness and self-control. Contentment is a, it's really a combination of thankfulness and self-control. Thankfulness says, I recognize and value what God has brought about in this situation, whatever that situation is. 
Because thankfulness recognizes I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. An ungrateful spirit says I don't see value or what God has brought about in this situation. Ingratitude says I deserve better. I deserve more. Um, You know, when you get a paycheck, a thankful attitude says, well, this is God's provision for me out out of his supply to meet my needs and the needs of others. That's what a thankful heart says. But an ungrateful attitude receives their paycheck and says, they paid me what they owe me, but it's not enough. It's not enough. But if we recognize and value what God's given to us in any given situation, and we realize biblically that we don't deserve anything but hell and condemnation, then we will be overflowing with thankfulness. Thankfulness will consume our hearts. Even the most difficult circumstances, because they are in Christ, even those things are working for our benefit. And so we can be grateful. We don't deserve anything. On the other hand, if we believe we're entitled to certain things, a certain lifestyle, a certain measure of health, a certain, uh, if we even believe that we have earned the salvation that we have um, possessed in Christ or that we were worthy of it, we will not be thankful to God for those things. And we will always expect God to do more. So thankfulness is critical to contentment. When it's present, we are satisfied and trusting in every situation. But when it's absent, we're unsettled, constantly presuming that we deserve better, that we deserve more. And that's not a good place to be. Thankfulness is a command in Scripture. Paul says, in everything, give thanks. This is your will, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we do well to ask ourselves just kind of a self-evaluation. Am I, ask yourself, am I a thankful person? Does thankfulness define my interactions with others? Is that the disposition, disposition of my heart? When you have a terrible day at work, can you be thankful? When you don't feel well, can you be thankful? When you struggle to make ends meet financially, can you be thankful? When your day doesn't happen according to your vision of what it's going to look like in your mind, can you be thankful? If you lack thankfulness, there will be an absence of contentment in your heart, and an absence of contentment is a death knell to biblical stewardship. But alongside thankfulness, contentment is a composite of uh, that as well as self-control. Self-control. Self-control is the discipline to act and think with prudence and restraint, and it only comes with being filled with the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Self-control is a fruit, is among the fruit of the Spirit. It is a discipline to act and think with prudence and restraint. When you and I have self-control, our decision-making is guided by the fence of the Word of God kind of like keeps us in the backyard, right? It keeps us from running off into the ditches of sin or foolishness. Self-control means you're not given to sudden impulsive actions. You're steadfast. You're predictable. You're not tossed around like a ship on the sea. Uh, Years ago, we, we um, we taught college students and newly graduated college students um, through some of uh, these concepts and material, this material uh, of, of self-control. 
And we made the point that as a younger person, you're particularly susceptible to impulsiveness. That's why uh, P- Paul says in Titus chapter 2 that young men and young women are to be instructed to be sensible. <laughs> That's really a, a euphemistic way of saying, get your, get your head together and have some self-control. But it's not just for younger folks to struggle with self-control. Older, older, older saints do as well. As we read in our call to worship, Peter encourages the saints to gird up the loins of their mind. Jesus, uh, Paul, Peter says, tuck in all the loose ends of your life so you can fix your hope on Christ. That's what it means to have self-control. So again, we do well to ask ourselves these questions. Do you find yourself constantly starting things but not finishing them? Are you erratic and impulsive in the things that you pursue and your responsibilities? Do you find it hard to tell yourself no? Do others always have to chase you to get things finished? Or are you a person who sees through, sees things through excuse me, to completion? Are you somebody who's predictable and steadfast in your responsibilities? Are you able to shepherd, this is important, are you able to shepherd your heart to the truth and walk in it consistently without someone looking over your shoulder? It's not hard to see then how thankfulness and self-control come together to make sure that we live a life of contentment. Contentment, as we said earlier, is accepting in faith with a thankful heart and a submissive spirit that which God in his grace and wisdom ordains for us. As we learned uh, in equipping hour this morning, there is no plan B with God. What he ordains, he does. What he, pl- what he purposes, he accomplishes. He does whatsoever he pleases, the scripture says. And therefore, whatever he has ordained for us in any given moment is his will for us. He may have ma- put you in a difficult situation or he may have put you in a favorable situation. He, he may be meeting all your financial wants or he may be systematically stripping your resources down to nothing. He may be sustaining your health and stamina just the way you would prefer, or he may be limiting that through some kind of chronic illness. He might be giving you a great victory over sin, or God might be bringing test after test after test into your life to expose your pride, your immaturity, and to see where your heart really lies. Regardless of where God has you, you, are fill, you when you're filled with contentment, you will walk in obedience to his word in every situation. You're going to be thankful in your heart, and you're going to exercise self-control so that you stay within the boundaries of his word. That's what he does through his spirit. So is there a secret to contentment? How can you really be content? I wish there was a better secret than the one Paul gives us, but in Philippians 4, he says, I've learned the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not a promise that you're going to run a marathon when you're my age. (laughs) It's not, that's not what the promise, I can do all things, means. He's saying, I can, Paul says, I can live in every situation with contentment through God's enabling power. The secret to being content is being confident in God and his power. It's not trusting in our own resources, but trusting in God and his resources and to be content in those situations. So it's active. Contentment is an active endeavor. 
Some people might think contentment is indifference. You just, you know, whatever God has is going to happen. That's just what's going to happen. So why work? Why save? Um, why budget? <laughs> uh, why, why do anything? Well, no. Contentment says I'm going to obey God in this circumstance and in that circumstance. And if the situation changes, I'm going to keep obeying God in those circumstances. Contentment constantly ignores that little voice in our head that says, for example, the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence. Because once you get to the other side of the fence, guess what? There's another fence. There's always another fence. So does that mean we just resign ourselves to our circumstances? Is it passive? Not at all. Like I said, contentment is active. It's industrious. It demands planning, exertion. It requires endurance. To be content requires endurance. But as you exert yourself in God's capacity, as you wait on his timing, you can be thankful in his sustaining grace. You manage what God's given you now, what's in front of you today, and trust his wisdom and timing for what he might choose to do in the future. So contentment is the second essential attitude that leads to faithful stewardship. So two, two essential heart attitudes, generosity and contentment. They're like two peas in a pod. They travel together in scripture and they're at the heart of faithful stewardship. I want to end by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 6. 2 Timothy chapter 6. Excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 6. First, there's no 2 Timothy chapter 6 if you're looking for it. 1 Timothy, chapter 6. Paul instructs Timothy to pursue godliness because he says with it comes, uh, comes, great, comes great gain. Not necessarily financial gain, as the false teachers that he condemns in the previous section sought after, but true and lasting profit in the heavenly realm. Verse 6, he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain, or you could also translate that word as profit, what's left over when all is said and done, when, he said, accompanied by, what? Contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, he says, with these we shall be content. So Paul's instruction is simple, be content. <laughs> be content, resist the urge to acquire more, to get rich, to store up earthly treasures that, he says, you just cannot take with you. So many professing Christians have made this mistake of chasing after those things, and they have been caught in the devil's snare. We need to be careful to be on guard for that. He says, instead of, uh, instead of being uh, caught up in the things of the world, he says, later on in chapter 6, be generous. The flip side of content, or alongside contentment, be generous. Verse 17, instruct those, who, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, nor to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And then he says this, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The antidote to mismanagement is to fix our hope on God 
and to store up for ourselves a good and lasting foundation for the future. This is laying up treasure in heaven because Jesus, Paul says that is life indeed. That is, that's the life you want. That's the life you should pursue. And at the end of the day, we will be evaluated and rewarded based on our faithfulness to steward what God's entrusted to us. And it's not just talking about finances. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your skills and gifts, your capacities. And we're all gifted differently. We all have different lives. And so it's not about comparing ourselves with others, but it's about how are we managing what God has given us individually. If he's entrusted you with much, much is required. If he's entrusted you with little, you're not off the hook either. Faithfulness is still required. And, and there will be a, 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 a rewarding, a judgment of rewarding of that faithfulness. But if I look at the word of God as we, as we have this morning, just in a very short summary survey, the two things that stand out to me are generosity and contentment. And these are the things that we need to be pursuing as a church. We want to be, I want this church and you should want this church to be marked out by generosity. That, that people are spring-loaded to meet needs. And even if they can't do that with, with finances, they can do that with their time, they can do that with their prayers, they can do that with their, with their encouragement, their words. And, uh, and we're a church that people would look at us and say, I know where their heart is. I know where their treasure is. It's in heaven. And we should live lives that reflect that. And if we do that, and then whatever the Lord does in terms of prospering us or, or gifting us or, or, or adding to our midst or whatever it is, the Lord is glorified in that and we can trust him. Just some important things for us to think through as we turn our hearts and minds uh, to the year ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gift of your son. There is no greater gift that you could give than the gift of eternal life through your son by faith. We thank you for that. We thank you that because you have given your son and, and through your, through the, through your um, sovereign will, given us the spirit as well to walk with you in, in true fellowship, um, that we can do all that you have commanded, all that you have given to us, uh, you have given to us in your sovereign will. Help us, to, help us to be like Paul, to be found trustworthy in every sense. And help us, to, uh, help us to, to look around us and be alert to the needs that people have. You know, sometimes, Lord, we're, we're just going through life just minding our own business, which blinds us to the needs around us. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to, help us to look around and see where, where are those needs. And may we hold the things of this world and all that you've given us lightly, knowing that uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and your name is to be blessed in every circumstance. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder this morning. We pray that these things would be true of our hearts and of our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com 
or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.